Welcome, everybody, to another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And I'll tell you, we got some, some shows coming up in the future you're not going to believe, especially the one after this one. But this is the important show because this is the mailbags. Mailbag. And we like hearing from the, everybody out there with the mailbag. Yeah. So my compadre, co-writer, Pat Picciarelli. Good evening, everybody. That that I guess that makes it official. We can start. I hope so. Okay, we've got. Uh, yeah, we have no more other voices. No Megans, <laughs> no Alex yet. They're all they're all taking a, a, a siesta. Uh, Alex Alex will kick in starting next week. But from now from here it's you and I. Anyway, uh, the first uh, email is from author. I'm reading the book Tough Jews based on a recommendation from your show on the mob and the Nazis. I was surprised to read that TV personality. Larry King was associated with Murder Incorporated. Do you have any inside information on his involvement? I'd like to know how he was involved. <laughs> I know Larry King okay. well. Uh, yeah, I, I've read the book uh, a couple of years ago, but you know, you read books and you, you forget what's in them most of the time, but this part I remember because I said, Larry King? There must mean some other Larry King. I, mean, I guess it's a common name. No. It's the, it, it's, it, it's the TV guy with the bony shoulders, Larry King. That's the guy. He was he, he he grew up with these guys. He hung out with these guys. He hung around the candy store, the social clubs. Oh, as a kid, and then yeah. Well, that this was in this was in the forties, naturally. I understand, but then then he went his way, and well, he wasn't a, he wasn't a kid. He was in his twenties then. I understand, but when I'm all right, no more. Go ahead, but Larry uh, King was definitely not involved in Murder Incorporated. No, doing no, hits, no. But, no. Yeah, but he counted these guys as their friends when they were killing everybody. Naturally, Larry wasn't, but he he, he was with. He was particularly close with Abe Rellis, Kid Twist, the guy that thought he could fly out of the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island. He, he couldn't fly. Anyway, uh, yeah, he that, that surprised me. Considering uh, who who Larry well, we all yeah, as you know, come growing up in the neighborhoods, we everybody frequent the same places. Yeah, well... It's like your father's one, bar, you know, cops and, and robbers and everybody was there. This went a little bit further than that. They had their own social club, as a lot of these guys do. You know, uh, members only, yada, yada. Anyway, Larry King would be uh, permitted in there. And uh, and when when he found fame... I mean, there was a book, uh, Murder Incorporated, in the, written in the early 1960s by Burton Turkus, who was the uh, DA at the time that these guys from Murder, Inc. were, 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 uh, were prosecuted. And there was a, lots of press, Thomas Dewey and all these people. Larry King, throughout his entire career and all his fame, never mentioned it once. Well, and I think up, the, uh, the author, just knowing what we do, I think the author, let's use his name, will sell books. As we're talking about it now, years well, later. Well, yeah. This book... Uh, uh, Murder Incorporated, the, the book by Burton Tarkus, was probably out of print by the early seventies. It was it was uh, written in, in the sixties. But there were so uh, many books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, this was supposed to be the book because he was the prosecutor in the case. You know, so anyway, all right. Moving along, from Janine, 
for Patrick, would you want either of your sons to be a police officer? This may be the shortest answer of any email we had, but hell no. <laughs> Especially I mean, now. <laughs> oh, well, at, you know, at, at one time, perhaps, if it was the old police department, when, uh, you know, you, you could go to work and, and return home without fear of getting in, indicted. Oh. You know, I mean, times change. But uh, this is one of the reasons uh, I quit teaching in the police academy. Uh, Pennsylvania has a, has a system where their police academies are located in state-run universities. So there's not, no one central police academy like there is, for instance, at the LAPD, the NYPD, et cetera. So I taught in the police academy up until fairly recently in the uh, academy that was located in California University, which is located in California, Pennsylvania, not the state. But anyway, after doing this for uh, a while, I saw these young, fresh faces coming in. And it, these, these are small classes, 15 people, 12 people. Uh, I saw these kids coming in thinking that they're going to change the world. And, I, you know, I, I, I just, like you said, Johnny, in, in this atmosphere, anybody being a cop, even strangers, I couldn't bring myself to continue to teach in the academy. And I just walked away. So if I had anything to do with convincing these people to stay in the academy and uh, have a career in, in law enforcement, this is just, these days, this is not the thing to do. So if any of my sons, fortunately, my sons did not lean in that direction, either of them. They never even thought about it. It never even crossed their mind. They never even asked the question about it, which That's I think great. is a good thing. And I take a, a lesson learned from my father who uh, once told me there's two things I'd never want you to be when you grow up. A restaurant owner, which is what he did, and he wound up dropping dead in the restaurant. Uh, it's a lot of work. And or, and or a police officer. So he must be doing flip-flops wherever he is because I uh, went the route and became a cop, but that was eight years after he passed away. Oh, oh you and became he, a cop after he died. Yeah, my father died in 1960. I didn't come on the job until... Oh, I didn't know that. That's the first time I heard yeah, it. I was, I, was, I was 14 when he died. I was young. Uh, anyway, uh, moving along. From Paul. I've heard over the years that imprisoned mob bosses still run their families from behind bars. How is that possible? Oh, come on. Where's this guy living in a, in a, under a rock? Well, I'll explain to the people who perhaps don't know. Okay. How it's possible... While you're in prison, your family is allowed to visit you. Even if your brother is an underboss, he can come. Plus, security guards who need extra money at night. Oh, hard to believe. Yeah, I know. Extra, extra money. I mean, while John Gotti was in prison, he used to get a phone for an hour a night from a prison <laughs> guard. Prison yeah. guard. And I know that because when they were making the movie Gotti, I was making a movie called Striptease in Miami with Demi Moore and an actor, Armand Asante, who was asked by HBO to play John Gotti. And he's, I ain't doing that role. So he, I, he came on the set with me and he said, you know, I just got a call today from HBO to play John. I said, do it. He said, oh, no, how, yeah. how, you can, what if you don't like the way I'm doing it? I said, he's not like that. <laughs> so I called somebody, yeah. and that night, John called myself while I was on the set because he said, "When do, you know, find out when he's going to be around that guy." 
And the phone rang, and I said, Armand, somebody wants to talk to you. <laughs> it was John yeah. Gotti. So, and so, he so, told so, him, I'd be honored you playing me. You know, and the way it turned out, uh, he, he did a hell of a lot better John Gotti than uh, John Travolta did by far. Oh, my God. I mean, John Travolta. That's, that, that's probably one of the most underrated mob movies, uh, well, the, the, the Gotti movie that uh, Armand DeSanti was in. But you know the funniest thing is? John Gotti's son produced it and wrote it. He did? Oh, I didn't know. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, and wrote it. Wow, I didn't think he and, had that. And was it. like technical advisor. Well, I can see that. But I mean, no, true. I mean, when they told me John Travolta, I said, this is like. Oh, that movie. I thought you meant the one that Armand DeSanti was. Oh, no way. No, no, our movie, no way. No, no, yeah, no. That no, turned no. out too well. <laughs> no, no, no. HBO did well on that. And then. Uh, that's why I got to know John For For uh, Forsythe. John Forsythe was playing Sammy the Bull in that movie, if you remember. Yeah. Yes. And then Armand, right after that movie, because of the weight he gained, he got a hernia, and he was supposed to come to me to do another movie, and um, for which he stands. And he was doing lines every day on the set because they were bored of my script. So William Forsythe came in, tested for, and I gave him the part. And there's a movie that William Forsythe, uh, Maria Conchito Alonso, um, Ali Agul, Sally Kellerman, all were in. I wrote it and produced it. And uh, that's a lot of big names. Oh yeah, it was a big movie. Big movie. Yeah. Well, I made a lot of big movies. I didn't. I didn't make yeah. small movie. Every movie I made was big. Forty six and were huge. Yeah, and well, he gave, you know, Sunday, all that. But John uh, Billy Forsythe played uh, the role that we, uh, that he, our mom was supposed to play, for which he stands. Yeah, it's a good movie, actually. It is, yeah, it is. I saw it. Oh, you also, did? To, to further clarify, uh, you're not supposed to have cell phones in prison, obviously. But if you know who you know, like John Gotti, for example, you get one. Oh, and, yeah. and any 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 conversation that's uh, 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 you have any kind of conversation, whether it's a personal meeting or on a prison payphone, those are recorded. It's all recorded. So yeah, you have to do that. Everybody speaks in code. Yeah, uh, you know it's but you know it isn't as easy as, as being in, in a social club barking out orders. That's for damn sure. Right. You know, there's a lag there between uh, giving orders and having them carried out. But anything is possible. You know, I, I always wonder why, you know, after a while, these guys are in jail so long, like Gotti. There has to be an erosion of power there. Even though he's the boss when he goes in, after for five, six, seven years. Oh, yeah. I mean, and first of all, you know, the one thing about Italians that I could attest to, they, they get greedy when they're giving up money to people that not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the envelopes change and in weight and amounts. No, but there's a lot. Of, I mean, look at Junior Persico. He ran a, he ran the family for 20 years. Yeah, well. From Lampark. And, and, yeah, and that's on the West Coast. I, mean, I know. It's, uh, uh, it's okay, all crazy. Uh, this is from Gianni for Gianni. So there's actually two Giannis out there. This is interesting. Oh, anyway. There's a lot of them. Yeah, well, one of them just wrote you an email. Uh, have you guys ever done a show on Sam Stefano, who's an outfit enforcer? I'm reading things about the guy that sound unbelievable. 
No, he didn't. But after I read this email, I did a little digging. Did you know anything about this guy? Who? Sam DiStefano. Chicago. From Chicago guy. Oh, yeah. He's... Yeah. You know, he was so freaking crazy. We have to do a show on this guy because he, what, a, what a career, if you can call it that, he had. He was so unstable. He was with the outfit all his life. They never made the guy. Well, they knew that's how crazy he was. Yeah, but that's how odd is that? Well, what was his name? Sam. They had in Sam. I forgot his nickname. I met him numerous times. Yeah, Mad Sam. I'll, yeah, no, because he, he was he he would be about ten years, fifteen years older than me. He was friends with Nick Nitty. That's how I met him. You know, he he also killed his own brother. Well, that's what you, the oath you take. I know, but how many people actually do that? I mean, oh, I know, I know a few of them that did. Kill their brothers? Yeah. Or the yeah. family member? Yeah. You know, I, I could see a, a, a third cousin, you know, four times. That's why I wasn't in shock yeah. when Michael killed Fredo. Yeah. Because it's a known thing. This, your family, the oath you took, that family comes before everybody, including yeah, you. everything, I understand. But this guy also was uh, uh, tr tried uh, in state court for murder. He decides he's going to defend himself. I mean, he's a total psycho. No, he's not. So yeah. I'm going to do some research on this guy, and we'll do a we'll do a show on him. Uh, so, uh, Gianni, thank you. Not you, the other guy. Yeah, Gianni, thank you, Gianni, Gianni. Okay. <laughs> no, we're going to. We'll, yeah, let's look it up. See if we can get a show. Well, I know. Well, I, well, let's we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll uh, we'll see if we have enough on him, but I'm sure we do. Okay, from Lisa. There's not much written on Tommy and Rosemary Uvo. That's U V O who made a name for themselves in the early 90s by ripping off Queens mob social clubs. What do you know about them? I don't know. You recall this case? Nope. Well, I you? did. This was, uh, this was a married couple. They both worked for a travel agency, if I recall. And they decided, and they were young, they were in their 20s, they decided uh, an easy way to make money was to rip off mafia social clubs with the members inside. They hold up card games. And they, they did this for a long time. Just two of them? Two of them. She, well, she just, just him, she was behind the wheel of the getaway car. And they did this for quite a while. And, uh, and uh, Tommy wasn't satisfied with just ripping them off at these card games. He made them strip and go out and, and, and he chased them outside in their underwear. He humiliated these guys. I never heard this. What, okay. what year was this going on? Early 90s, I'd say. Wow. Yeah, uh, eventually, the, the work, and they didn't go anywhere. They still lived in, I believe they lived in Howard Beach. Uh, and, you know, they, they, were, they were identified, but they were just like living from one apartment to another. And just uh, one day they were, they were sitting in a car and somebody came in and, and, uh, and uh, whacked them. But not after... A uh, colorful career. They ripped off a lot of people. But what and I'm they, saying is that knowing the people I know, <laughs> I don't know whose, whose clubs these were. Must have been underlings. Well, there, there, there was a lot of them. What I was surprised at was how long it took them to kill these people. They didn't run. They weren't running. They were, you know, hiding in plain sight, that type of thing. But nobody gave them up. Anyway, if anybody wants to do any research on it, that's Tommy and Rosemary Uvo, UVO. I recall the case very well because I had just retired from the job. Tommy and Rosemary. 
Tommy and Rosemary. Uh, and they had legitimate jobs. They worked for a travel agency. I mean, anyway, from Mark. Uh, here's a good one. What became of Megan? Is she in the witness protection program? <laughs> Inquire, <laughs> inquiry minds want to know. Well, you, you spoke to her last, Johnny, so fill in the audience. Well, I, I, do, I want to, um, and I, I'll share it because, I mean, what both Pat and I knew three years ago when she came on the show, she's very bright. And it was only a matter of time that she would move on to bigger and better things, and she has done that. She's become a um, she's the assistant, a, to, uh, yeah, an assistant director on a major TV show. And uh, one thing she does not like is to be talking about her business. So I'm trying to be very <laughs> coy about it. But she's on a major, major show, and they just offer a bigger role coming next season. And she went on it and tested it, and she was doing, we were, Pat and I were very gracious in trying to flex our schedule with her, but anybody that's doing a series, the one that she was doing especially, they're 14, 16 hours a day, five days a week. So, you know, and Pat and I have a life, we don't want to do this on Saturday and Sunday. No, we definitely don't. And so we tried to accommodate her, and God bless her. You'll be hearing many, many great things of Megan Horan yeah, in, in the fact, future. In fact, one day we may have her as a guest. Oh, yeah, there we go. That yeah. would be interesting. Wouldn't it? About yeah, a year from now, we should have her on. Yeah, let's, let's give Talk us, about let's, her experiences. Yeah, let's give us six months in, 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 in the crazy world of, of, uh, of TV production. Yeah. If she's still sane, we'd be glad to have her on the show. Yeah. But okay, well, thank uh, you for the question. We'll, we'll pass it on and let her know. Yeah, that the missed. fans are inquiring. Yeah, so the uh, so the answer to your question is, Mark, no, she's not in the witness protection program. But who knows? Maybe one day she will be. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <If> she will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, her or, or us. Anyway, Eddie, this is from Eddie. I tried to submit this ad, but anyway, uh, I, I may be able to help you on the Malman Road daughter search. I lived in Brentwood for twenty five years on the same street Marilyn died on. The previous resident of my home became friends of ours, and one of the kids may have been in the same school time frame as this individual, meaning the daughter, and might remember her. The family was a very powerful uh, industry family, so they would have known everyone in the business at that time in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, that's why I lived there. I'm not sure if she'll speak to you, but let me know if that's of interest to you. Well, please, Pat, let him know. I will. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, and, and again, have, with all due respect to her, we're not going to disclose her, but no, just no. because of my feelings and, and the brief four years, I knew the mother and I hope she's listening to the show. If there's anything she needs financially or anything, reach out because, and I will never give it up. I mean, I, her mother was so, so good to me and in different, so many different ways. So anyway, uh, yeah, somebody reached out to me. You know, this is how we, we get information for some of these investigations we're doing. People, and we have thousands and thousands of listeners, you know, somebody knows something. And apparently Eddie, uh, Eddie from, in fact, he still lives in L.A., according to his email address. So, yes, Eddie, I will, I will reach out to you. Okay. For everyone. This is from, uh, oh, Jeannie Raymond. We know her. She's sent a few emails. Oh, yeah, she's a big fan for uh, many years. Yes. Uh, anyway, hello, friends. Uh, 
Gianni, I've heard you talk about your parents, your children, and grandchildren. What about siblings? Do you have any? Pat, I'm happy to hear that Ray Yale is going to be part of your new book. I just finished the pop line and I loved it. I'm looking forward to reading the new one. So what about your siblings? I have three sisters and uh, I don't talk about them because I, I think they have private lives and I really yeah. don't get along with them. <laughs> they, <you know. laughs> Which is another good reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's a situation where we had a very strange upbringing, unfortunately, because I went into the polio ward and my mother had a nervous breakdown. So one of my sisters went to live with her godparents. One went to live with my grandmother. And then my older sister dedicated her life to the church and became a nun, had a nervous breakdown. There's really no great story to tell. Well, if I ever needed any facts to write a book, I know exactly where to go. Yeah, tell me okay. about it. Okay, and as far as me, not that you asked, but I, I had one twin sister who passed away 30 years ago. Oh, I didn't uh, know that either. Yeah, I had a twin sister. I'm Patrick. She was Patricia. Very smart kid. She actually got her, her uh, doctorate at, uh, at 23 years old. And to put that into uh, into perspective, I got mine at seventy two. So wow. I mean, uh, no, she was. But you did good. something else. You did something for twenty years prior. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and she, she she spoke five languages, including uh, fluent Cantonese. Wow! Uh, in fact, when uh, when Richard Nixon opened up Red China in in nineteen seventy, we didn't have diplomatic relations with them. Uh, Richard Nixon, as president, uh, opened that line of communication again. He was invited there, and he couldn't find any. Chinese speakers, so they uh, they they went to Columbia where my sister was teaching, and they tapped her, and she went to China with Nixon. Oh, that's Transit. wild! Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, yes, the uh, Ray Yale, the character in my two books, uh, Bloodshot Eyes and the Pop Line, will be back in uh, Gianni's new book called The Pawn. Uh, this is a work of fiction. Those of you who don't already know that, so we're we're bringing. Uh, uh, Ray Yale back in his in his position as a private eye to uh, help out in a very interesting case. Anyway, that that book will be out uh, in December of yep. Christmas. So thank you, Jeannie. Okay, Anthony, 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 Anthony. Okay, hello everyone. Hope all is well. My question is for all of you. Uh, have you, this guy doesn't punctuate, so it's difficult for me to read. Okay. This is a question for all of you. Have you, have you heard they found a body in a barrel in Lake Mead? Yeah. I think the world knows that now. Yeah. I think yeah. out of Las Vegas. What do in you fact, guys listen think? to our show next week. We'll discuss it. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we are. Anyway, uh, it, it said that he was shot and had, uh, shot in the head at close range, uh, from the, maybe the seventies or eighties. I guess these stories are true. You know, yeah, as Gianni said, we're doing a show on uh, dumping grounds next week. Uh, of course, we'll talk more about it then. But you know what What I found really amazing? You know, these, these bodies, you've got to find a lot more bodies. Because Lake Mead. Oh, yeah. How far is Lake Mead from Vegas in drive time, Gianni? Uh, I, I used to go every day to my boat in Lake Mead. It took me half hour, 45 minutes at all. Okay. Well, that was a dumping ground. Uh, and and we, we all know from. Uh, mob stories that the mob loves to stick people in 55 gallon drums. Just ask Johnny Roselli. Oh yeah, well Johnny Roselli was the one of the most famous. He was ready to try, uh, try him, and he came floating up in Miami, and the people the people that 
put him in the barrel, which was so funny. If anybody knows Johnny Rosselli, we'll get in more depth of it next week. But Johnny Rosselli loved monograms, have a shirt monogrammed. Everything was monogrammed, but not in little one-eighth letters. He'd have them like half-inch letters. J.R., 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 everything J.R. So when they put him in the barrel, when they got the body to dispose of it, where rigor mortis was setting in, so they had to cut off his legs and stick him in a barrel. So when they sealed the barrel, as a joke, they put J.R. on the outside of it. <laughs> you know, it's nice to know these guys don't lack a sense of humor, you know? I like that. <laughs> anyway, he was dumped in Biscayne Bay, and uh, somehow he floated to the surface. Which yeah, the chains broke out, and the, t- and the tide. And I was sitting with a guy, I can't even mention his name because he's still alive. And he said, you see what I'm seeing? <laughs> I said, yeah. He says, I mean, that says J.R. on there, right? I said, yeah. He says, check, check. We were having lunch on an outside patio on a bay. <laughs> really? I mean, what are, the, what are the odds, man? Yeah, I mean, it was so crazy. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, we're going to talk more about dumping grounds next week because, uh, you know, you've got to have a week to think about what I'm about to say, but think about it. Without a body, it's very difficult to prosecute a case. Right. So, uh, you know, and you say, well, you know, we live in a very big country. Where can you possibly stick a body? I mean, you can stick them anywhere. And that's what we'll be talking about, some some ingenious ways. Anyway, Johnny, I think it's time for a break. Okay. We'll be right back. We need a commercial and make some money. Don't go nowhere. We know where you live, man. We do. I'm I'm on my way over there now. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com That's CorleoneFineItalian.com Okay, we're back with some more questions. And don't forget, send these cards in, man, the letters. We love getting them, and especially when you're giving us some ideas for a show, like this gentleman just did, and uh, we, we, you know, we want to answer your questions, and we want to receive your mail. Absolutely. So just, you know, you got the email address. Just go on our website. Hollywood Father God uh, Podcast Godfather, Hollywood Godfather Podcast.com. I got that out. Okay. Back to the questions from Pete. There hasn't been a gang war amongst the families in New York for 30 years. Is that is everyone getting along that well? <laughs> <laughs> I think they each family has their own problems as I know it now, and they're, they're not as massive as they were. And they were having more problems with the younger kids, as I remember, trying to move up. Well, what do you remember, Pat? Well, you know, I, I agree that you, you're talking about survival here. Right. So uh, uh, inside fighting uh, amongst families is not productive. It's never productive. But but now, you know, the, the, the feds you know, have all kinds of sophisticated technology. It's very difficult. Uh, in, unless you maintain a low profile and be extremely careful, you know, I've always had a, 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 an idea, and I don't know why the uh, 
some of these families didn't follow through with this. About, well, I was still living in uh, New York. Uh, a maid guy in Brooklyn, and I forgot his name. It was so long because I didn't know him. It was just an intermediary that owned apartment buildings in Bed-Stuy. And Bed-Stuy has always been a cesspool, but at the time it was just starting to get gentrified. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this was this was a while ago, maybe 30 years ago. He owned property and he thought one of the people that were managing his buildings, and there were several, were stealing from him. And he, and he wanted a polygraph test done. So I said, as a favor to my friend, I'm not going to charge you or anything, but I have to know that what I tell you isn't going to lead to this guy's pain and suffering. You give me your word, and I'll test him. And he did. Uh, this guy had a uh, had a good reputation. He said, I can give you my word. I just wanted to get rid of the guy. This is a legit, you know, not, not that way, but he mm-hmm. said, this is legitimate businesses, and I don't want to lose money from a thief. If it was somewhere else, maybe I couldn't make that promise, but this is rental property so anyway i tested uh, i tested several of them and i found uh, the one guy failed miserably and uh and it was so easy because the guy had him shaking and quaking and he confessed and he just fired him and i checked six months later the guy was still around the, you know flipping burgers somewhere but i often thought why the mafia who always tries to and has to stay one step ahead of law enforcement doesn't send somebody to polygraph school where anybody can go. Well, you have to have a, a four-year college degree, but there's a lot of people out there with four-year college degrees for the sole purpose of testing people within the organization. They never thought of it. Well, I don't think they'd go for it. I don't know. I had a very good friend of mine that used to sweep their uh, their offices for bugs. Oh, yeah. Well, that, you they hired you for that, but you're not pinpointing your members to be basically calling them a rat. It's an well, honest society, I mean, number one. Well, if you did it right and you don't go on fishing expeditions, well, something's wrong. We're going to test everybody. We're going to throw all questions out there. you got a specific problem with a specific suspect before you do anything to this guy that may end his life. Uh, you want to make sure this would just be another layer of icing on the cake. Not, a, not fishing expeditions or anything like that, but you have somebody that you know and your heart did it, but you want to make sure. So he's either going to do two things. You call him up the night before and say, you got to be in here tomorrow to take a polygraph test. And he's not going to show up. <laughs> he's gone. He's in the wind. Or somebody will think that they can bluff their way through. And yeah, but up. I don't, I mean, I just knowing the people I've known all my life, yeah. I don't think they'd ever make a blanket request of everybody else to get polygraphed. But that's my point. If they think that they have... Uh, just have uh, get one guy and do it that way. Uh, a solid suspect. And, yeah, you know, that's it. like, I, I always thought it was a good, I never brought it up. I mean, I didn't hang with these guys, but still I'm thinking, why, why didn't they not do that? I knew the guy who was doing sweeps, uh, bug sweeps. Oh, but he gets paid. They, they had them done all the time. Yeah, well, that was, that was uh, obviously uh, an outside contractor. Right. Yeah, but I'm talking to somebody that they sent to school. I think it's a good investment just for the fact that it's there. Oh, yeah, that, that no, you, no, they had it. I mean, is a deterrent. No. But anyway, that, that's going to have to go in, a, in one of my books somewhere, I guess. But, anyway, no, but the thing see. is that, as you know, and, and you brought it out, today, with everything that's so sophisticated electronically, you can't walk the streets without being photographed. Even if you're not a, sus- a suspect, 
they'll pull the tapes the next morning and find out you walked down that street you said you weren't on. I was talking to a London cop uh, a couple of years ago. He said, there's not a street or an alley in London proper that does not have a closed-circuit television camera. I can believe it. They're, Hundreds they're... of thousands of suckers are out there. And uh, we have a lot. Well, I, I talk about we are still living in New York, but New Yorkers are under scrutiny from cameras, but not nearly that many. No. I mean, as as uh, London, uh, London is more uh, has more of a terrorist threat than. Uh, well, than that's what they use the it for too. What's that? That's what they use the excuse for the cameras. Yeah, yeah, and it's a valid excuse. But yeah. anyway, uh, in, in in the process of finding terrorists, they're looking at everybody else. You know, law-abiding citizens, uh, you know, it's, uh, but uh, anyway, technology has gotten to the point where uh, you you can't, you can't go anywhere, do anything. I mean, facial recognition alone is going to hang so many people. Oh my God, I think it's already doing it. I I wouldn't want to be a gangster. So anyway, no, there isn't, there hasn't been any gang wars. The last one was in the early 90s. And that was in Brooklyn, and they were there was a lot of collateral damage there. I recall a seventeen-year-old guy in a, in a in a pizzeria that was throwing dough. He got killed, straight yeah. bullet. You know, I mean, it's it, it's bad press, and they'll they will avoid anything to do that. Okay, moving on. From Margaret, has there ever been a woman with any power in the mob? Guys, wives, think- maybe, but. I- I heard a lot of stories, but, you know. Well, I I wrote a book, Anthony Gianni, you're very familiar with, uh, Teresa D'Alessio. Oh, yeah. I mean, but she wasn't, okay. but she wasn't in power, like she said. Well, I'll Fictitiously, she was in power. I, this guy, uh, this woman, Margaret, probably talked about bosses. But uh, uh, Teresa was raised in a mob family, and she had an idea that no one else had. This was in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, her idea was to steal mail from Wall Street stock brokerage firms. Uh, those were the days, and I'm sure they have other ways of handling uh, the She mail was doing it. Not alone. I know, idea. but you had to get permission <laughs> to do it. But what, what these Wall Street firms would do is stuff these big mail bags full of mail and leave it in the lobby of the building. So Teresa had, had the, the, this idea was, Go through the mail, and you could see an envelope that has a check in it. So they would keep all those and return the rest of the mail to the lobby. So to do this, she had to get permission uh, from whoever ran the area down there. That's the that's the Bananos. No, New York, Gambino. Bananos in Brooklyn. Lower Manhattan. Lower Manhattan. How, how, how low can you get the Mulberry Street? Yeah, well, anyway, she called. The reason I'm asking is she went to some guy. Now, when I was interviewing her for the book, she was already starting to go a little. I mean, she was perfectly lucid. She, uh, 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 but uh, she had uh, Alzheimer's, so she was starting to get it. So she said, you know, I, the guy was known as Big Red, who she had to get permission from. Okay. That was a Well, maybe name. Big Red had, I mean, you know, they had so many people. On Wall Street, yeah, young kids that were educated. And, I mean, they had a, a boiler room that, you know, they were doing penny stock and everything else. That was legitimate. Oh, the boiler things will go on. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, 
But anyway, she had to go to this guy who was allegedly a boss or an under or, or uh, probably ran a crew, I would think. Right. And asked if, if she can do it. And, you know, the uh, crew that had the area got their cut. But she operated this for years until she finally got caught. Well, her father, you know, her father, Pope, his nickname was Pope Delessio. That was that was her uncle. Uncle. He, actually, I was going to say, but Pope had the power over the whole family. So if he said, my niece wants to do this, you get, and as long as everybody's being taken care of, they don't care. Yeah, I, I don't know. She didn't, she didn't get into that. I asked. I said, well, why does your family think about it? She said, they didn't know. But I said, how could they not know? You know, I mean, that's a... It's a, it's well, a, it's Teresa was lived in a, a make-believe world. Number one, just going out with Fashion Fashionetti and Tommy Bellotti at the same time. You, she loved that danger. Yeah. Well, I mean, they those are the two wildest guys in I that I can remember. They were well, the, uh, really killing each other almost. Uh, well, uh, Tommy, Tommy survived. Was killed in front of her. Yeah. I mean, uh, but and still, she liked the life. Uh, oh no! But she anyway, she, she I mean, I know. Well, but we. I'm probably our audience listening. I know so many wives and girls that are enamored by this life. I've, I mean, I, when when John Gotti started hang out at Regimes, it was a high end club in New York, and these women would go with their husbands, and I've seen women. You know, giving Joe in the eye, and when the husband went to the bathroom, one of John's guys would tell the guy and throw him out. <laughs> yeah, there's there's an attraction. You know that it's crazy. You can't get more of a bad guy than a, than a than a mafia guy. Hello, but, but yeah, I'm sure they never had a problem getting women. But uh, anyway, Teresa did I think a little less than two years. She did it in MCC. They never sent her upstate because it was a federal thing. Uh, you know, fooling with the males. She, oh, that's what she, uh, oh, she got. She actually got pinched on it, huh? She got federal time. What yeah, year was she, this? Early seventies or maybe mid seventies. Yeah, I was already gone. Uh, she did. Well, yeah, when you do federal time, you got to do it in a federal facility, right? And uh, this was thirty years, forty years ago, and MCC was fairly new, and that's where they put her. So, uh, but even well, then, a lot of was, my friends while they were waiting for trial. Without bail, stayed in MCC two or three years before they go to trial. Yeah. But they actually sentenced her to MCC. And that's yeah. where she stayed. But she was so, she, she didn't know what to do there. She People were, uh, you know, other women were, were trying to, you know, they heard she was uh, mobbed up. They wanted to shake her down. So the uh, MCC was looking for a head chef for the entire institution. And MCC is a big building. Yeah. So, so they had a lot of prisoners in there. So they were trying to find somebody, you know, an outside chef, but nobody wanted to work under those conditions. You know, you're in jail yourself, practically. So she said, I'm a chef. I could, she never boiled water in her life. I was going to say, when did she become, <laughs> I mean, I, I only knew of her because, you know, I, I was never allowed, and I probably never said this on the radio, I was never allowed to be associated with those kind of people. Because when they were grooming me for something else, and it all worked out well. I was in Vegas, you know, Corey for that. You know, I was on a different level. And it wasn't families. It was the syndicate. And that's why, you know, me and, and Nick Nitty did so well for 20 years. It's crazy. Well, he, was, he was on a different career path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, anyway, she, she bullshitted her way in 
to the job to be chef of the entire institution, like 14 stories. It's a huge building. She taught herself how to cook as she went along. Well, she and, had all the sous chefs and everybody. I, well, uh, you bring up something there because when yeah. I went to Israel, yeah. I wanted to live in a kibbutz. I couldn't believe how I went over with Moshe Diane, yeah. and I wanted to live in a kibbutz. They said, "What are you going to do?" I saw I'm a chef, and I was a chef just like every other Italian thinks he can cook. You know. <laughs> well, you did, but you have a reputation for being a good cook. Oh, now I do, but I'm saying when I was there. I had all these people that were the chefs already, and they wanted me. I, I was the Italian chef, so I just knew everything my grandmother did, and I did it again. And they loved it. And they loved it. And the oh, good yeah. news about it, I had maybe 10 gorgeous assistants, none of them over 18. <laughs> yeah. All ready to go in the Army. I, I, I never well, they had to go in the Army at 16 there. Yeah, they, they have to do their bit. Male or good. female. It's amazing. Well, you know, I, I don't think that's such a bad idea. I don't think so either. Yeah, give okay. them some discipline. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, what Teresa also had going for her was she was getting uh, supplies, sauces, fresh oh, yeah. vegetables. Everything was smuggled in. Uh, and she was preparing. You know, it's very, I mean, what's so hard about making sauce? But what these prisoners had to eat compared to what Teresa was making, it was like comparing uh, McDonald's to Lutes. Right. You know, I mean, they loved what she did. And after a while, she ran the kitchen. She ran the kitchen for the whole time she was there. That's great. Uh, she had, uh, she was smart. Okay. But anyway, that's the only woman I know that came anywhere close. Yeah, actually, she actually got permission to run the scam. Now, I don't know. I never heard of any other woman even asking for permission to do anything involving that life. Do you? My, well, my first mother-in-law, Tina Cavano, I could talk about her. And uh, when her husband passed, she she owned a, a, a diner, major diner on Staten Island, and uh, she wanted to have a numbers and Shylock business. <laughs> and she had and, to ask, right? And she asked. Oh, well, yeah, she wanted their protection too. Hello, because then if you didn't pay up, they'd go get the money for her. She had a major book. You would not believe. Really, both numbers, horses. And Shylock. That was also that was the Alessio territory too. Yeah. John father, right? Yep. He ran old. Yep. I didn't think Pope had that much influence in that family. Apparently he did. Well, I mean the guy the guy right above who's had it all was a guy called Joe Lafort, Joe the Cat. Yeah. In fact, Joe the Cat, you know, was the landlord for the Ravenite building. When they when they wanted to buy that building, he gave him the money. He was the landlord. Well, so you know, they, uh, I interviewed Pope for, for for Terry's book. Oh, and he was in, he was in his nineties then. Wow, and he and uh, very well spoken guy, very very respectful, very polite. Oh no, he, they he, had a big business, his, scrap metal he, and junk. Well, he, he was in his nineties, had a forty year old girlfriend. Oh sure, he said, "I'm living the life." He said, "You know," but according to, to uh, uh, Teresa, if he played a role at all, it was very quietly done. He wasn't a pushy, showy guy. Oh, no, 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 no. That's yeah, when he, it used to be what it was. Hello. A, a secret organization. Yeah, before the Gaudis and the Sammy the Bulls were <laughs> out every night. and Yeah. No, he was. He, he played low. He didn't die too long ago, either. That's right. I think I think he outlived Terry. <laughs> well, they did. Well, she, you know, Alzheimer's did it. She, she was calling me. Everybody heard that. She, in fact, I heard from her son about three months ago. Like I tell wow. you this, 
they're doing a screenplay. Uh, oh, the and, uh, well, they, they want to know if I want to get involved. I said, the only thing I'm getting involved in is you got to buy my rights because Terry and I had them. She's gone. Uh, so, it, and they said, well, do you have a price? And I said, you, you know, it's based it on the budget. When you get to that, let me know. I'll tell you how to do it. Okay. Yeah. In fact, they still have the email. I told them I'm available, you know, any, any late afternoon or evening. He says, uh, and that wasn't the first time you called over the last two years, about three or four times. Mm-hmm. Now the screenplay is done. We got people, we got funding, we got this, we got that. And I said, well, you can't do anything based on the book without me. So we'll see what happens. But she had an interesting life. Anyway, moving on from John. What's the plan for Gianni's fiction series? What can the reader expect? Okay. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a series. We don't know if we're going to be doing one or two books a year. And it's going to be based on, uh, it's going to be fiction based on truth. And I think I mentioned this uh, uh, once or twice in the past. Uh, The disclaimer on the uh, title page is going to be, this is a work of fiction, uh, except for the parts that are true. Okay, so. (laughs) Which I think is brilliant. Yeah, so we're going to have to, uh, you know, and it's such material here. And the way the series is, what the reader can expect, as John, if you're listening, is the way you put it. Uh, they can expect they. It's not going to be anything in chronological order. Uh, Johnny's life was varied and got so many plots and what we can do with them. It's going to bounce around. Well, let's fact, let's let's give a little honesty there. We have we're forced almost to do that until some of my subjects pass on because <laughs> or the statute of limitations. So. As you're coming up with these these storylines, the when we're talking about real people, they'll be in there, and they'll become part of the fictitious story. And and and, and keep in mind that that some of what is going to be in in, in the first book is coming to light as fact uh, from various venues. In fact, we did a we did a, a show on this a couple of weeks ago, so it's not totally picked out of the sky. It's things that Gianni was involved in. And, you know, you're writing fiction, you have a literary license, you can do whatever you want. It's a lot of fun. So they're not going to be in chronological order. The first one takes place in the 80s. Uh, it, it starts in the 60s and it moves on to the 80s. The second one we're talking about taking place in the Caribbean. Uh, it'll take place later than that. Some will take place when Johnny was younger and just out of uh, Bellevue Hospital where he spent many years in a polio award. We can do anything that we want to do with these. Uh, so uh, we have a title. It's a working title for the first one. It's called The Pawn. That's P-A-W-N, not P-O-R-N. Yeah. <laughs> like a uh, chess piece. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope that answers your question. Uh, it's going to be uh, trade paperbacks, which are the same size as a hardcover, only with a soft cover. It'll we can keep the price lower than a hardcover. Oh, by the way, Gianni, this is uh, something I didn't have that chance to tell you. Talking to Frank Wyman, our our agent today. Oh, did you? Yes, he says hello. I talked for about 20 minutes. He informed me that there is a paper shortage. Oh, I know. I was going to tell you that. Yeah. They don't want to make hardcover books now. Yeah, I know. The less paper and the less ways for shipping and mailing. It's going to be the whole, yeah, yeah. And it's going to be the whole new trend. 
uh, those of you who don't know it, books are, are, are priced by weight. Right. So if you've got a hardcover book, it's going to cost more than the same book would cost in softcover. And we could pass that uh, savings on to the, to the readers. It's going to be the same size as a hardcover, just with a softcover. A, a hardcover, the, the, the hardcover itself is pressed paper. Right, and if you don't have it to press, you've got a problem. And uh, Frank said, "This is this is severe." Oh, it's he severe said. to me because my gift boxes for Cordelione Fine Italian. If anybody goes online, those gift boxes have now for me quadrupled. So what I wow. put? Oh no, you can't, can't you can't get the paper. Yeah, it's you can't amazing. Get anything. So anyway, it's well, anyway. it's. Uh, but- it's a big, and that's why, because you and I had a, a conversation about, because me being an old school, I like a hardcover. But yeah. hardcover is going to be totally obsolete in three years. There'll be none. Or, or maybe sooner. Out, or it's going to be out of most people's reach financially. Right. And we want you to read stories and have a good time with it and have fun and continue to buy the series. So we're going to continue doing this. Uh, oh, no, but even look, look all the audio books we sold. And that's something else. Uh, the, the the increase in audiobook sales has been tremendous, according right. to Frank. Today. It's so convenient. Yeah, it's convenient, and it's unabridged. You, you get the same book, uh, only uh, in, a, in a spoken word. And Gianni read uh, uh, our book, and he did a very good job on it. So uh, we're going to go audio, too, and he'll be reading all these books. So anyway, uh, that's it. That's the last question we had from John. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you all, everybody out there, and tune in next week. We're going to be talking about the uh, the graveyards of the mob around the world because now that this has been triggered in Lake Mead, and I personally was on Lake Mead during that time, which I'm not too comfortable about, but we'll be talking about it next week. All right, thank you. God bless. Pat. Good night, Johnny. Good night, everybody. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but Thank just you call for tuning me. in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Horan, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you'd like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. I'll be around.